We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. So a punk rock cop meets a punk rock cop <laughs> over Instagram about their podcast. Pretty much, so, yeah. Right. So that's like the that's the backdrop for all the <clears throat> listeners to understand that I got Mac on here today as my guest, and he is the host of the Zen Cop podcast. That recently several other people have been sending me links like, hey, you need to check out this podcast, which I'd already started checking them out uh when he had a guest on there, uh Brady from Books Behind the Badge. So the funny thing is, uh, there's this thing that that we call punk rock cops, and it's been going on for I don't know a year or two now. And through Instagram and and through doing different podcasts and, and guests with one another, uh, we're all starting to learn that every department seems to have one, two, or twenty, depending on how big the department is. Uh, cops who grew up in like the punk rock or hardcore scene, and so that was one of the things that uh, my guest today, Mac, and I started talking about uh, very quickly was our backgrounds growing up, probably very similar, listening to very similar bands, and maybe wanting the same thing out of police work. I don't know. We'll, f we'll find out today. So, Mac, I appreciate you joining us today on the show. Thank you. And I want to start out, uh, I'm not going to give you that like 30-second intro where you talk all about yourself because we'll get into all that while we're talking today. Sure. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I will start off with saying uh, your podcast is amazing. And, and the main reason I say that is I don't just like throw out, oh, this is a great show, this and that. I always give examples of why. And one of the common themes that you have is actual information that's accurate. And that when people listen to the show, they'll actually come away with, I would hope anyway, feeling a little bit better and actually having a better understanding about police work or specific topics. Yeah. And one of the episodes that comes to mind is you have one uh, in which you went back through uh, the Rodney King case and the riots in L.A. to kind of lay the groundwork because we often forget that some of the listeners or even some of the people now that are putting on uh, you know, a duty belt or a vest and they're going out there on patrol, uh, for their first year may not have even been born, uh, when Rodney King rights occurred. Yeah. Um, so it was cool that when you laid that out, it was almost the equivalent of like reading an article or reading a book on it. And you just kind of go through it step by step. And some of the things I, I didn't even know about, and I was around when that case went on and actually affected me because I was high school age and listening to a lot of hardcore. And at that time, uh, around that time, Ice-T's Cop Killer mm -hmm. uh, was all over the news, at least where I was in the South. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that going on? So I was born in 85. So I think we're a little bit different in <laughs> so age. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. got you about a few but years. I remember Rodney King as a kid. My mm -hmm. dad was a, uh, a high school teacher at the time. And I remember it happening and it, it didn't really affect much for me as a kid, but I mm -hmm. had family in LA at the time. And, um, you know, that episode was, I, I try to talk about things that are going to be, uh, relevant to today. And, you know, George Floyd sort of being the Rodney King for this new generation, but more so understanding that there's a, a big difference between, you know, what we, what we see on TV and what actually happened. And it doesn't negate the fact that there was an excessive use of force, force issue with Rodney King. There was, mm -hmm. but 
looking at how it happened, how we got there, and then the aftermath, um, and then looking at Rodney King after the fact, who still to this day, he's, he's passed since, but said that's not what he wanted. He didn't want that reaction from the public. And yeah. the same thing could be said, George Floyd obviously didn't survive, but I truly believe that anybody who would be in that situation would not want that to be the outcome of their you know, attack or demise. But the the whole point behind that was basically seeing that history repeats itself over and over and over again, and regardless of the technology that we have. And even at the time for Rodney King, not many people had camcorders in their mm -hmm. homes. So the gentleman with the camcorder, his name escapes me, but he was essentially the catalyst behind capturing the incident and then it going public. Without the footage, I don't think we would have seen the reaction. Same with George Floyd, if we didn't have the footage of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're cops. We could both agree that that scenario has probably occurred more times than not, just not being captured on film. So I think that if we look back to, to history, um, you know, we could learn a lot and more importantly for the new generation to understand how to navigate it because once it's done, there's nothing we can do. Now it's our job to, to manage and, and rebuild. And I guess one of the main things with the podcast is I try to, I don't want a podcast just for cops. I think there's enough of them out there. I think mm -hmm. that there's enough talk about tactics and all that stuff which is great that it's limitless almost to the point to where it becomes obsessive and just too much but the stuff that i talk about and this is kind of going back to one of the reasons why i entered law enforcement was to sort of change the stigma and give a a very neutral but also very raw and organic perspective to what the job brings and i don't think the majority of the the general public really understands what goes on in in cop world and if they did, maybe they would have a, a different perspective when when things go horribly, I guess. So I, I agree 100 uh, percent. I've said it probably for about the past three to four years when it seemed like there was, a, at least in our area, a shift of, oh, well, we, we as a department, you know, we have to get out and and give out more stickers and and have more community engagement and. I would hear that going on in meetings at different levels because my background, I had different ranks, obviously at different times. So I got access to meetings where sometimes the strategies made sense. And sometimes I, I did feel like I was in a twilight zone episode. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we, we, when I say we like the core group of hard chargers within my department and other departments who were always doing proactive assignments, who cared about their beat, who took the time to know their frequent flyers in their area, knew their problems, you know, and actually address those problems. We were always making contact with the community. Like you never just sat in a patrol car in a parking lot for hours and hours and hours waiting for some 911 dispatch. That's just not like that. My group that I came up through, that's not how we did police work. So it, it was kind of a foreign concept of this, buzzword of humanizing the badge that people were saying and i'm like we but we've been doing that in our district on patrol we were doing that we were doing it on different assignments you're doing it when you're developing sources in a neighborhood in order to gather information on gangs or drug you know drug rings and stuff it's like we've been doing that we, we've been out talking to the community so it's very strange when all of a sudden there's this this buzz that um now these departments need to get out and meet the public now i will say the departments, I think, historically have done a horrible job of actually educating the public on real police work, not not just going out. And, and I'm not I'm not um, 
I'm not trying to say anything negative about like coffee with a cop or anything like that. Those are all great things. But I think that a department that trains or teaches the public, hey, this is what goes on during a traffic stop. And everything is on the up and up until someone does not follow commands or anything like that. And they begin to reach for things in a car or they resist in any way. This is how we, you know, departments or officers get to that lethal force, um, you know, scenario or whatever, or how things just go horribly wrong and it's on video. So then once someone sees a video and they say, well, I just saw this angle. I don't understand why the officer just grabs the, the driver and all of a sudden pulls them out of the car and then they're fighting on the ground. You know, it's almost now that the pendulum has shifted to where citizens first believe that the officer is a robot and they don't care about human beings and they're just going out on patrol to just beat people. And it's, it's crazy to me because it's like, no, that's the opposite. Every interaction we have, we're assessing the behavior, body language, compliance. And then when people aren't compliant, we're not going to get killed or stabbed or assaulted. So we have to react to what the citizen does. I just think departments fall short a lot of times on explaining that very easily, a lot better than I just tried to do, <laughs> you know, but they, if, if they were creating YouTube clips that were saying, this is what's expected during a traffic stop, or this is what's expected during any kind of police encounter. You know, we used to stop a lot of guys and girls coming through the cuts late at night, two, three in the morning, sneaking between houses because they were too lazy to walk down the street and go through a crosswalk or whatever. Or they got warrants. They don't want to get caught out on the street. You know, either way, we're stopping people. And sometimes we're thinking they are somebody else. And that person we think they are may have warrants for a shooting, for a homicide, or known to carry a gun. Or we get intel that this person's rolling around with a gun in their waistband. And they got beef with this person. And now they're in this person's neighborhood and we go to stop them. We could misidentify someone, but when we run up and we've got weapons drawn and we're telling someone lay down flat on the ground, like that's when citizens just lay down flat on the ground, follow commands. And then you're not the person we're looking for while it's traumatic and it's terrible. And I've been in that as a citizen, I've had a gun pointed at me by police. Like, yeah, it's not fun. Also I follow commands and I survived. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I do believe departments fail that usually nine times out of 10 miserably. Yeah. In my opinion. There's a, so going back to the, the humanizing the bad stuff, I mean, for social media, I think that there, there's a lot of cops who don't like it, but social media for me personally, it gives us a voice, which is good. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a happy medium between this TikTok stuff and no social media presence where if you kind of cut it in the middle and you use it to your advantage to show what the people really want, which is a lot of the crime statistics. And, you know, are you keeping our community safe? And, you know, looking back to the the 90s and people are always afraid to go back in time to look at tactics and methods mm -hmm. and stuff like that because they're afraid that, oh, it was more, you know, dangerous or it was. And that's not necessarily true. In the 90s, we had in California specifically the the pop programs that they initiated were awesome. So the problem oriented mm -hmm. policing programs where. Yeah. Uh, especially in Sacramento, they had these grids where they would just, you had your beat and your beat was a small group of that community. And you would have breakfast with these people. You would talk to the people who were willing to come out and help you. Mm -hmm. And in that combination of, you know, 
whatever you want to call it, um, you know, community relations, they actually suppressed crime quite a bit. Now, for California in particular, we're sinking because of Prop 47, because of AB 109. And for those who don't know, Prop 47 was the, it was titled the Safe Schools Act, which essentially said, hey, we're going to divert all this money from the criminal justice system and put it back into the schools and reducing felonies to misdemeanors and misdemeanors to infractions. That was in, uh, I'm going to mess up the numbers, but let's just call it eight, seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and nothing has gotten better because of it. It's gotten worse. And uh, in, in my state, criminals know that there's no repercussions. So yeah, for us to really be successful, the, the, the bad guy needs to be afraid. And if they're not afraid, well, then they're going to keep doing what they're doing. And in my state in particular, I can say, we can all say with, with certainty that, um, you know, the, the reduction does nothing and it creates this very strange vacuum for criminal enterprise. And mm -hmm. when we combine that with the, you know, social media efforts and I work for a, a pretty, I'm, I'm lucky. My, uh, my sheriff's office is, is, is fairly conservative in terms of, of laws. We hold people accountable. Um, if you get arrested, it's going to be different than most of the surrounding areas. Uh, but that also goes to say, you know, that we have a community that has a zero tolerance policy for, for crime. And even the, the bad guys in certain parts of our, our County are actually even somewhat respectful when it comes to, to the cop <laughs> right. work. And yeah. that's also because we develop these relationships mm -hmm. where we, you know, every contact you have, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, you're, you're creating a potential stigma that could go down for years or decades. And I always remind people that the average person and why they generally don't care for law enforcement is because the average person in theory in the U.S. will be stopped twice for a, a traffic uh, violation. And in those, you know, two, three minutes of contact, the cop's not, you know, wearing a top hat and, a uh, you know, cane doing a dance next to the car. No, he's just kind of doing his thing. And yeah, in that three minutes, though, the person's going to leave. That cop was a dick, especially if they mm -hmm. get a ticket. And so that's their takeaway. And I've said this before jokingly, but motor cops, thank you so much for for really driving that stigma home. Uh, no, like but <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. the one time they'll get they'll get pulled over. They're not gonna have the time mm -hmm. where you know the cop brings home their eight-year-old that, that ran away or what so it's just sort of dependent on. And mm -hmm. I think if most people understood that that interaction was so important, we don't have to be this, you know. I guess, super positive entity, but you do have some type of responsibility. Uh, there was a video recently and I, I, I looked into it to look at all of the, the circs around it, but it was essentially a, it was a male and female cop. They show up to this house pretty late after the daughter was solicited for sex online by some mm, creep. And yeah. it was yeah. a very brief interaction. It went horribly. And mm -hmm. that made like, you know, national social media, you know, headlines, if you will. And, I don't know what was going on. I don't know all the details. That could have been a repeat thing. The guy could have been crazy. Who knows? But if the if the scenario was genuine, you have officially ruined that guy's mm -hmm. perspective and the families and friends and neighbors. And now the people see it on TV and they're going to know, okay, well, this department's obviously horrible. And so I I think that if the majority of especially the new guys understood that there was there's going to be some type of ripple effect or a consequence for everyone else every time we do something wrong and i think the the bigger one most recently was george floyd where every cop in the world saw that and went oh god that looks terrible mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it would have been something as simple as just body positioning and we can go down a rabbit hole of how he died but ultimately the the body dies of you know shock eventually a different stage of shock and 
um, you know, positional, whatever. He also had a large amount of dope on board that made his heart stop. So yeah. had, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin maybe just moved or done something a mm -hmm. little bit differently. I don't think we would have had 2020 and yeah. it goes to show how many small things you can do to avoid that. And a lot of that comes with, you know, talking to people, how you, uh, you know, use your, your words. And I always remind the new guys that unless you're, you know, Joe Supercop, your, your mouth can talk you into or out of a lot of very dangerous scenarios that, yeah. you know, it's essentially you want to avoid and you can be a proactive cop and, and be smart and not end up getting hurt or someone else hurt or your partner hurt. Um, it's just, there's such a mixed bag right now because of 2020. I mean, I know it's probably the same for everyone, but the newer, the, the guys that were coming in, I'm also a range master where I work. So I do our, our firearms uh, skills week mm. and the, the, the caliber, no pun intended of, of the people we are seeing come in. It's, it's, I'm not knocking the new guys, but it's definitely, you can see that all of the, the kids who are thinking, yeah, I want to be a cop. And then 2020 hit, they all went and did something else to, to help yeah. serve their community. They're yeah. not going to be cops anymore. So now we have these, these question marks that we're just saying, okay, here's your gun. Here's your badge. Here's your vest, you know, 10, eight, go forth and conquer. And a lot of the times it's this huge, okay, well, I hope it works out. And that's a very mm -hmm. unsettling way of doing business, considering the business that we're in. And we're, we're, I mean, we try to hire the best of the best. Everyone does, but I know some of the other agencies that are down by a lot. Um, if you have a pulse, they'll hire you. And we're bringing these people on that are going to make our jobs harder. And post George Floyd, we we had all these calls to, you know, essentially defund the police. And the first thing to go, and as you know, with your background, the first people to get axed is anything, you know, extracurricular, right? Mm -hmm. So your specialty units, your your SCAT teams, your your SED teams, all of these teams that their entire you know bread and butter is just getting the worst people on the planet. They go bye bye, and the worst people on the planet get to have the key to the city. So mm -hmm. we sort of screwed ourselves, not us, but the public. And now here we are, three years later, and everyone goes, "Hang on, I, th I think we were wrong." And it's like, okay, yeah. well, we can't just undo that. That's a yeah. whole. That's years of work um, mm -hmm. to include all the hitters uh, who we're close to retirement, but when, you know what, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. And even in my agency, um, there were quite a few people who just said, you know what, I'm going to retire. I'm, I'm good. And losing those, those great men and women, the ones who, you know, just the studs, you have those guys where you just go that, yeah, that guy just, he's, he's just so badass. He's, he's the guy that I want to be someday. And when they walk away, it sends a message and it's not personal. I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just to be clear, if, if you're done, get out. I, I cannot stress that enough to where if you are coming to work, and this is more for a personal thing rather than an agency thing, you're going to kill yourself eventually internally. If you truly hate what you do, and you, we all hate our jobs sometimes, especially as cops, we will go, I, I just, I hate my life. I hate my job. We say that, but the day that you really mean it, think about that. And if three months later, you still feel the same way, then maybe it's time to think of an exit plan and nothing should be knee jerk. You should have a, a plan to get out. And it's just a weird spot for everyone else. And me still being active in law enforcement, it's palpable everywhere you go. And that's just, it's hard. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> when we first started seeing the trend, 
of standards getting lowered and departments looking and and truly hemorrhaging 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 people yeah. yeah that word but i was sitting you know in a meeting you for us we were almost 200 sworn positions short well wow. which is is which is not good cuz i was not part of chicago la or new york <laughs> but i mean my department was a decent size but when you're talking about 200 people yeah or positions you're always going to have a few here and there but but we had never seen it that bad also those of us that were smart enough to look 5 years into the future and say we're not going we we are now basically going to have to rebuild mm-hmm. the entire way we do do things and how we're recruiting people and how we're getting them trained cuz our department ran its own academy and at one point we had one of the longer uh, academies on the east coast now i think everybody else has kind of added on to theirs and that was still one of the drawing things for us for recruits is that citizens were saying hey i want to be a cop i want to be a cop in a department that cares and is about the community and and our image was still very good that way we had full-time swat teams and so people were joining at one point and still saying hey eventually i want to go swat but i want to do it full-time and you're one of the few departments in the south that still has these full-time SWAT teams, right? We had more than one. So, but looking at recruiting and the standards, we also saw uh, a shift depending on who our chief was at the time. And I was fortunate for many years to teach like a one-day class in our academy on gangs. So so the department was cool enough to be like, hey, you love teaching gangs. We're going to give you eight hours. You got the recruits for an entire day. You teach them whatever you think they need to learn before they get on field training because I would teach, you know, different levels of courses all the way up to five days. So that was pretty cool. My department's um, side, but what I always would ask early on in the day, like basically how many of you all want to be, and then I would say something, you know, uh, homicide detective, drug detective, canine, you know, SWAT, like, you know, you go through like all these specialties that a mm-hmm. lot of people want to do at some point in their career. Um, and I remember one class, like nobody's saying anything. So I'm thinking, ah, maybe it's early. Maybe they just got smoked. They did like a 10-mile yeah. run or something. People were puking. Like, what's going on? Like, nobody's even responding. And we had a community, like a community squad or whatever in each district. And so then, you know, I throw out community squad. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you know. I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. It yeah. was the same class that some of the recruits, as we went through the day, started to realize because what I was telling them was like part of community policing, part of being, if you want to be a community, you know, team officer, you better know something about the community. And if the community has gangs, citizens are going to look towards you. If you're out there, you know, gripping and grinning at a, at an ice cream event or you're handing out backpacks or you're doing a coffee, you know, with a cop people in neighborhoods that are violent are going to ask you and, and, and basically check you. What are you doing to help my community? And mm-hmm. if you stand there, and kind of look at them and give them a smile and go, we're doing our best. Like, no, that doesn't work when grandmothers have lost grandkids and stuff. So it was kind of a way for me, one, to recalibrate and go, okay, I, I, I got to keep this class interesting. You got to understand how important the, the gang presence in our city is and why you need to stay on top of it. But there was also a side of me that realized we have just shifted, at least in this academy, and we're talking about probably 50 to 60 uh, students in one class. Like, 
we've just shifted in our department and we have hired a lot of people that all seem to think and want to do the exact same thing. Now that could be a huge problem for anything. If everyone in that class said, I want to be SWAT and that's all I want to do. Like, well, you may get frustrated with patrol or you may get frustrated with other assignments because you can't get the SWAT as fast enough or whatever. Like I would never want 50 applicants to all want the exact same thing out of police work. So it was an eye opener for me then to kind of realize, okay, what are we going to do when we look around and we've got patrol officers with two or three years of time, but not experience. In other words, like they have avoided any kind of proactive stops. They've avoided traffic stops at two in the morning, you know, because nobody's telling them to do that. They're avoiding trying to get information from the neighborhood on who killed somebody or shot somebody, you know, they're basically full on reactive. And like you've said about history, you study the criminal justice system and, and how things have bounced back and forth, you know, the rates of recidivism and, and that sort of thing. And like, are we going to keep pushing proactive units? Are we going to go back to reactive? And what was this, the state of police world in 1968 and 69? <clears throat> oh yeah. All time low for police recruiting. You know, the general consensus was, every cop's a pig. And, you know, so it's just like, it, it's those cycles keep occurring. And I think the big thing is what <clears throat> we're seeing right now is like you said, now, three years later, the average citizen, I think is kind of waking up a little bit and going one, the media made a whole lot of money off of running sensational stories. Yep. And, and two, maybe these policies that we thought were going to be so great, uh, are not great and they were not based in in logic or research or i don't know did anybody ever sit down a panel of 25 sworn officers who have 20 years of experience and say if you could change you know police policies right now what would you do i don't know any of them that would say oh yeah strip a bunch of money away from us you know uh, run stories that, that are negative or only show five seconds of a video. When you have 30 seconds, their mm -hmm. news channel, don't run the five, run the 30 seconds and tell the whole story the way it is like, you know, but, but I don't think anyone ever asked officers what they thought or, or their input. These policies just started cropping up and, and sadly, uh, politicians, not leaders that were elected, uh, started playing the political game and police department suffered, but more importantly, the neighborhood suffered. I think every city is the exact same. The neighborhoods that were already suffering gang violence, it only exacerbated it. And when you talked about schools earlier, when you reduce that, because I think most states now are, are all on 18 or above for physical arrest. Uh, in the South, we had some states that were still physical arrest at 16 years old, a couple, about maybe two or three years ago. So once you've raised, raised that age and then you remove, like some schools have removed SROs, mm -hmm. some schools have removed the, um, the threat or the idea that, hey, if you commit criminal acts on school grounds, you will be charged as such. Now, the, one of the worst schools I can remember in my, in my city when I was a patrol officer, we, at one point we had a carload of four or five guys pull onto the school grounds with a stolen firearm to go into school and shoot somebody. Now the SRO that day who rose to the top of the department or one of the highest ranks 
absolutely phenomenal cop. Nicest guy in the world. If you if you met him, you'd do anything in the world for you. But that dude could also do police work. So he was able to get the car stopped, get units there. He had a great network of students that provided information to him like that. And that was that was kind of the opener for everybody to realize this school is is surrounded by gangs and we got a huge problem. The principal was like, come in, teach my staff about gangs. I'm going to make this the number one priority because this is the problem I have. I want my kids to be safe. I went in and she was the only principal out of all of the high schools in the city that said that. The others would say, well, we don't have a gang problem. And myself and their SRO would sit there and explain, no, you do have a gang problem. And I'm going to name the gangs that you have present in your sit in your um, school. We can articulate that at whatever you want to do. We're here for you. We have full resources. And a lot of those principals were like, nope, we don't have that problem. And I think a lot of that is because either they were in denial or once they identify that problem, it could reflect maybe poorly on the principal or something. Sure. I, I don't. I don't work in the school system, but I do know when everybody else went hands off and stopped doing long-term suspensions and stopped looking at how to remove the problem and, and identify the way that principal did at that school when I went in and taught. And that principal also said, you all have free reign to, to tell us what needs to be done, work special projects around the school, like whatever you need to do. I just, I want my kids safe. And so we would run projects all around that school. I mean, it was, it, it, to me, it was scary in the sense that I didn't want anyone to get hurt, the kids or anything, but she was right. I mean, they were like surrounded by sharks. Kids were getting robbed on the way to school because they would cut through a park, you know, from their neighborhood. And you'd have two or three bloods that would hang out on that cut, like on that trail. And as kids were coming through, they just about run your pockets. Like, so before they even get to school, they're getting robbed, yeah. you know? So SRO at that point was like, Hey, I'll set up surveillance. You guys do my takedowns like that. When, when school systems address the problem, boom, it's gone six months, five months into the school year. She was long-term in everybody. The second a kid walked in with any indicator that they were in a gang, she pulled them aside. And I think there was a three day suspension. The next violation was 10 day. And then they were long-term and she would tell them, you know, my, my goal is you will be long-term as long as you're in a gang and you're bringing problems to my school mm -hmm. the feedback on the gang side when you develop informants and that sort of thing is that one don't get caught at that school because you're going to get kicked out and then two that we can't do what we were doing before like it's too hot at this school don't go hang out over there don't don't try to trespass don't go through the cuts like they're watching the cuts you know so it was all this feedback that we were getting from sources that we knew we were doing the right thing so, so that's i mean the positive side is once you identify that problem, address it and the, yeah. and the school systems, they can address it. But once again, like they have to teach the citizens as well. Like, Hey, if we tell you there's a gang presence, don't freak out parents. Don't send us a million emails. Don't start going to the news. Like give us some time and, and we'll, we'll develop a plan. I mean, I think that's the big, the big problem is when, when people are playing at politics and like, Oh, this theory or this idea will work great in schools and this is what we're going to do. And so then we know as kids, I mean, we were all there. You sitting in a classroom and the worst troublemaker in class doesn't get punished or kicked out. Then the next kid's like, well, if he gets away with it, I'm going to do it. And then you got four or five jackasses in class completely disrupting it. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about minor stuff. I'm not talking about like bringing guns to school. I'm not talking about Grape Street Crips beefing with nine tray bloods and just, you know, crazy stuff like that. Like, no, I'm just talking about basic class clown stuff, but it has escalated so much. But that, and you can overlay your gang or your violence in schools or your worst performing schools. And if you had a really good local agency that, that had a good grip on their gang problem, you could overlay their intel and you could see the schools that are suffering the most with disciplinary problems and violence are the ones who are, that have the most documentation of gang activity. Like it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. That's why I always tell people like every city's got gangs and they may not have a nationally recognized gang. They may not have technically like MS 13 in that school, but they can have the equivalent of that gang. Sure. <laughs> and all you need are two groups of people that hate one another and you got some problems on your hands. Yeah. It's uh, I think going back to like, um, if we looked at, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I don't work in construction, but I don't walk onto a job site and say, Hey, this frame is crooked. No. Cause I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. So we have these people who think, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, it's sad, but it's hilarious where the, the experts being us, the guys who see mm-hmm. it every day. Hey, what do you guys think? You talked about that panel. If you ask these cops, what would you do? Crime is a, is a incurable cancer. It's a bleed that we will never be able to stop. And crime reacts to pressure just like a wound does. So if we release the pressure, we're not going to control the bleeding. And we've, Mm -hmm. we've released the pressure so much now to where crime has said, great, like, this is awesome. This has happened before. It'll happen again. Oh yeah. And if we, if we continue to let it happen, which we are, um, you know, you discussed behavior, not even just bad stuff, but just generationally crime exists because of a family structure or lack thereof. So my big thing is I, I I took a deep dive years ago and started to look at the guys who were our, our usuals. And especially when I was on our, our homeless outreach team, I was on that team for three years and I noticed a very common theme. The common theme was either adopted or no dad. And mm-hmm. if we looked at the, the dad impact, I'm not saying that moms aren't important, but there's a phrase called instant family, just add dad. If the dad component is missing, especially in some of the inner city uh, gang groups, um, it's almost identical how they were raised and the lack of a, a father figure in their life. Mm-hmm. If we looked at that as a, a generational issue, you know, we could really solve not everything, but a lot of it with giving people structure. And a lot of people don't understand that if you're in that lifestyle doing the opposite, it'd be like you or I, um, you know, in a normal family, we live a life of crime and mm-hmm. everyone's going, no, don't do that. What are you doing in their scenario in their home life? If they try to be successful, they'll be ridiculed for it. Oh yeah. And yeah. my dad worked for a, a high school that was not great. Um, probably one of the, it wasn't one of the worst, but it was definitely not good. And the most common theme, and this is back when they had the truancy program. So they would go out with the SO and go do knock and talks to see where junior was and why he wasn't coming to school. And that doesn't happen anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, cops in California, we can't even interview juveniles anymore post arrest. There's, there's so much power that they have that we are showing them that, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. And I always remind people that, that that's where it starts. And I love seeing the, the kids that I used to see on calls, because if you're a cop for long enough, you're going to see generations. And if mm-hmm. their dad was a was a turd that we were dealing with all the time, you'd see the kids and eventually they grow up. 
and i loved seeing kids like you go to chipotle or wherever hey you work here oh cool man how's life oh yeah my dad you know he's he's still in custody but i'm doing it. it's like great good job keep going don't you yeah. know follow in your family's footsteps and nine times out of ten though they do and now you're yeah. arresting the kid that you used to call cps for and it's a it's a vicious cycle but again consistency and pressure is is kind of how we avoid that and some of those you know unavoidable i guess but mm -hmm. you know we're going to have frequent flyers no matter what but if we look at the going back to kind of the community efforts and i think we would see a, a drastic decrease in that and also having the right cops who can who can talk uh, mm -hmm. recently and this is I, so i was born in 85 so i was part of about i would say 90 92 91 is the cutoff tops for kids who grew up in the I guess tech generation when I was a kid I didn't have a cell phone till I started driving so I was 16 when I got a cell phone it was about the size of a football um, it was not something that um, I could use to to really do anything other you know call people whatever yeah. um, so I was I was forced and I had a natural ability when I was younger I was just very social um, it drives my wife nuts but whenever we go somewhere I'll just talk to people and yeah it's just <laughs> me, me. that's me and I love talking yeah. to people and yeah. on the job that was kind of one of my my tools of my trade where I just, I could talk to anybody about anything and either, you know, get information or get cooperation. And I, I had a, a few guys that I worked with on graves and we, we actually stayed on graves a lot longer than we had to, because we had so much fun. I worked nights mm -hmm. because of my team. I had seniority to move, but, but none of us did. And when we actually moved, we all moved to day shift, <laughs> but we were so talkative and, you know, even for the most like, heinous of arrests by the time we got to jail the guy would say hey thanks for being cool like i appreciate it yeah mm -hmm. and that would pay back later because everyone remembers they remember the dicks but they remember the cool guys more and you don't have to mm -hmm. be cool but just be polite and it's yeah. a job it's not personal mm -hmm. and so that would pay off we started to develop relationships and then pretty soon you're getting good information um and these guys who you know would essentially rat they're gonna you know sing like a canary and give you all this info just because you were respectful and mm -hmm. with the new group i i see this as the the biggest issue on the table and that is just being able to talk to people and they have a hard time talking and that's that's not okay we have to you know look at their upbringing and you know you and i talked about music before and when i was when i was younger you know, I was, I was just, I was running around riding bikes, doing, just doing what most kids now don't do. And having that, that social element was just such a big deal. And music for me was, was just something I, I took an interest to since I was a kid. My dad had a lot of records and I remember the first like album that caught my attention was dark side of the moon because of the graphic. And that was <laughs> yeah. on a record player. And then it just kind of went from there, but you know, growing up and and having the the social life that i did made me who i am today and that's a big part mm -hmm. of life experience where i feel like with kids today not kids but the newer generation of cops they literally have a hard time talking to someone and back in the day if that was a problem our ftos so now the ftos when i went through my academy i graduated went to a, a different agency ultimately landed where i am now and our fto program program was notorious for being like one of the hardest to, to get through and it's mm -hmm. for good reason right we want the best of the best and if they had people that were struggling with talking to people they would take you to target or walmart and they would make you walk around 
go talk to someone consensually and find out where they were born and how old they were. And mm. it made people really uncomfortable. Yeah. But that was the idea. And hey, like, okay, if you can't do that, we're just going to greet people at the door. You're going to say, hello, how are you? You know, I'm mm -hmm. so-and-so. And it was embarrassing. And now that would probably be considered like, I don't know, torture or whatever they want to call it. But that was something that had to be done because if you can't talk to someone, if you can't talk to crazy people, if you can't talk to mm -hmm. kids, um, you know, victims, suspects, all that stuff, it, you will be a, a, not a, you will be a, a bad thing for, for law enforcement overall. And, you know, even if it's, you don't have to be super, super, super social, but if you lack the ability, if you can't walk up to someone and strike up a conversation in uniform, then you shouldn't be here. Go, mm -hmm. go do something else. And, you know, I know plenty of cops who are very stoic and they're very robotic, but they're still good at what they do. And even in, in their robotic nature, they can still get information. And, uh, um, yeah. But going back to what you said earlier, the the things we see now um, is is a is almost like a fire department. The cops react, they move, mm -hmm. and they go respond, and then they come back to right to right where they were before. They ninety eight window up and don't do anything. And graveyard is it's it's the best. I had the most fun on graves. That was fun. And mm -hmm. even when it was slow, we still made it a point to drive around like maniacs and at least let the bad guys see that we were doing something. Yeah. And if we went to go meet up somewhere, we'd do it at a spot where they couldn't see us, but we were also smart enough not to stay stagnant. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if we couldn't arrest <clears throat> someone, we would just like literally just make their life so miserable that they would go, fine, I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And that worked and that's crime suppression <laughs> yeah. if you yeah. can't hook them then at least make them miserable yeah. to go i'm leaving i'm not coming back man you guys are horrible yeah. and horrible yeah. in a good way to where you know you're doing your job you're mm -hmm. you're making people leave and you know if if you don't have an idea of what's going on in your beat especially at night then you know you're you're not doing your job and i was never super cop i actually just i really enjoyed being a part of a, a team that can make an impact. And I never really cared about, you know, citations or anything like that, but I really enjoyed ultimately helping people. That was my, my reason for getting in and even arresting someone it's, it's helping them. And I've had mm -hmm. some pretty neat experiences, especially when I was on the homeless outreach team where I had guys either see me in person or they'd hit me up on uh, social media. We had a fake uh, Facebook account that we would use for stuff like that. And to see them years later, sober, got their kids back. Like that's, that's what, mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy. And I would love to see, Hey Mac. And you're just like, who are you? And they're like, Oh, it's so-and-so. And holy shit. Like you look great. What happened? Well, you know, yeah. and they would tell you like you, and I, I didn't even think we did anything that, you know, monumental, but they would say, Hey, because of you, I did this. Mm -hmm. like, wow. I don't even remember that conversation, but good. More power to you. So yeah, I think yeah. those I think those are the <clears throat> sides of police work that some people miss. You know, sure. like you go into like some you know, someone gets promoted, they move up the chain, and then they have a lot of things on their wall in the office, which can be really cool. Like I I had a sergeant that I would walk in and see his stuff and be like, man, he did a lot of like really cool assignments, task force stuff. Like that's cool. And then I I was fortunate enough to have a, a sergeant work on one of my homicide teams because I had moved up and he's like one of the most decorated people in the department. And so we would always kind of give him a hard time about because he's the nicest guy in the world, but he was like a super cop. Like he was mm -hmm. just really, really good at what he did. 
And he was he was fortunate in the sense that people were always putting him in for awards because he was doing really good work, like high level stuff. And so he has all these awards. And that was always like the running joke was, you know, we wanted him to like put them all up on his wall or whatever, or have him wear his awards like around his neck <laughs> every day or whatever. It's just like, you know, to have fun with that. But there's <clears throat> also this idea that if there's a way to capture when you do change somebody's life, you know, or a way to even just write it down in a journal or do something like that. Like that's my suggestion to newer officers is document. Yeah. You're going to get awards for like car chases and catching homicides suspects and you know, all these cool things, which I love also though, jot down those days. Like you're talking about, there's going to be somebody who's going to come up one day and they're going to say, do you remember me? And be honest. If you don't remember them say <laughs> no. And then they'll tell you, you know, Sometimes it'll be, hey, you arrested me, you know, or uh, you did this, you did that. Or you'll hear someone say, hey, I was younger when this happened. Mm -hmm. And so I had that happen with a guy who kept asking me about this detective. I was a patrol officer. And I was just like, look, man, I like right now I can't contact that detective. He's doing some stuff. I'll get word to him, you know. And, and basically the guy wasn't saying I'm an informant for him. He was trying to say. Yo, show, tell that dude I'm doing good, but like, like show him, tell him to show respect, like, I, like on my name, like I'm not, I'm not a bad dude. And he told me why he liked that detective so much. And this detective was a hard charger. Like that dude ran the streets, locked a lot of people up, you know, like people knew if he had you in his sight, so to speak, and you had warrants, you were going to get caught. If you, if you shot somebody, he was going to figure out who did it. So he had a good rep, but this kid, this, I say kid, he was in his early twenties then, but he said when he was a kid, this detective was a patrol officer, showed up at their house, his mom and another woman in the neighborhood had gotten in an argument and he, or, or she had hit another woman with a stick. Like the argument got so heated, she cracked her over the head with like a, a broom handle or something or a stick or whatever. And then that woman was mad, but it wasn't like they called the police, the police responded because the neighborhood somebody had called yeah. so it was kind of like they were trying to handle it like shooting the ones on their own you know but he said when this detective when he, he was the officer got got there he starts talking to everybody and quickly assesses these are two grown women that were fighting and it got out of hand but neither one of them wants to go to jail neither one of them wants the other person to get charged and so he took the stick threw it and was like i don't want to hear nothing else about this <laughs> you know get in the house, you take care of your, your split wig, you know, and y'all, y'all avoid one another. Like, give me your word. You're going to avoid one. So when he's telling me this story. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, cool. That dude said, man, if my mom would have got arrested that night, that would have been it. Like she would have had to stay in for a while. She had to lay down because, because some of her past. Yeah. But the, the cop in re reality read the situation and knew that knew that not everybody needs to go to jail because of that, because she's got kids, she's trying to take care of them. Now, how that would play out nowadays, who knows? Because mm -hmm. body camera footage may mm -hmm. get released, and then people would say, this is a lazy officer. The officer didn't really care about, you know, the families, whatever. You know, it's like, no, he was a solid beat cop and took care of people, even though it sounds counter counterintuitive. Like, he yeah. didn't take someone to jail when he had evidence and all this. It was like, no, like you got to read the room. You got to know your beat. You got to know your area and citizens living in a neighborhood. Like sometimes everybody kind of polices themselves or at least, sure. you know, 
So, but when he gave me that, that feedback, I was like, man, that's, that's all right. You know what I mean? Like that. And so I will tell, I'll say for officers to, to document somehow in a journal or whatever, or hang on to those little cards or notes. Maybe you get from somebody yeah. that says, Hey, it meant something when you went a little bit extra, you know, or, you know, cause you're going to see all these bad stuff, things happening and you'll never know what your effect was unless you work the area, unless you're out there talking to people, you get feedback or people tell you your name's good. Mm -hmm. You know, like that was one of the things that I would ask a lot when I'm just, we just, you know, you just call it like you just, you just BSing with people, you know, you yeah. just roll up, you talk to people or you're out on foot patrol, you're walking in between apartment buildings or trailers or, or houses or whatever. And you just go up and you just talk to someone. And a lot of times as people start talking, and you say, hey, basically, like, who's who's the worst cop out here? Like, whose name is not good? And people will oftentimes tell you the exact same name yeah. time and time again. 100%. And so then, yeah, so then you know it. And they also tell you the good. Like, hey, yeah. so-and-so's doing right out here. Or, you know, like like there was a buddy of mine in in uh, high-ranking uh, G-Shine blood. It was like, hey, yo, that's, that's um, uh, I forgot his name. Uh, but he, had, he had nicknamed him what, what was the equivalent of like on, on the level. Like if you yeah. screw up, he's going to take you to jail. If by the book, that's what he said, yo, that's by the book. And I was <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Cause, cause books and gang terms meant like knowledge anyway. Sure. So he was like, you know, that's by the book. I'm like, what? But that's what he was saying. I was like, my buddy's way of policing was like this, like he, he wasn't always like laughing and joking with everybody, but if somebody, you know, got out of line, they went to jail, then everybody know, saw it and said, yeah, you, you screwed up. You know, that dude caught mm -hmm. you. Oh, well, it's part, you know, it's part of the game. And yeah. he wasn't out there like writing every little citation or every little violation, but it's just one of those things that for newer officers, like the trend may be to be reactive and you may be trained that way. And you may be told that way. I can guarantee you give it another year or two after elections yeah. when politicians now shift and want to get, be anti-crime or, or be tough on crime the way certain politicians were back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's the same play. Just like you said, in history, like you study history, you know, okay, I'm not predicting the future necessarily. I'm just studying past behavior. Like, yeah. This is going to be the reaction and everybody's going to act like, oh my gosh, how was, you know, 2020 or 2023, like so violent. Yeah. Compare it to, to the mid nineties for a lot of cities, compare sure. it to the late sixties, early seventies, same violence. Like, why is that? Uh, it's sometimes tied to politics, to policy, to cultural shifts. Sometimes it's something like a crack ep epidemic uh -huh. that takes off. And when it takes off, departments are trying to get ahead of that violence. And if they had never worked drugs and never understood how to articulate a, a drug sale or how to develop an informant, how the heck can they get ahead of it? And yeah. that's what cities are doing now. They're losing all that knowledge. Like you were talking about earlier when people retire or even the hard chargers say, you know what, what I'm doing is not being rewarded. And as a matter of fact, I feel like if I go out there and do something proactive, I'm going to potentially get, fired because yeah. i have created a cnn news story or something uh -huh. and and i know for a fact there are departments and higher ups who have told their officers do not go out there and create another news story yeah so now you've got officers that are 
that are not, you know, going to go do those things. So, so now these, these departments have to relearn all this stuff, but they're, but they're having to kind of build that boat while they're waist deep in water. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not fun trying to learn how to break the cycle of violence when you're responding to multiple shootings or yeah. multiple homicides. And that's like, that's always kind of been my angle for you know two decades in police work was can we as a department develop the information to get ahead of some type of future act of violence? And then can we disrupt it? Can we do something to change somebody's behavior? It's like you were saying earlier, it's like when, when habitual criminals know that there's no proactive units in that city, that's like, I mean, that's like having a substitute teacher, you know what I mean? In class, it's like this teacher doesn't know, you know, they're just trying to get through this 50 minute class. Like, and it is, it's crazy too, when you can hear, uh, jail phone calls, you can hear recorded, you know, um, transactions because you're working informants or you're reading text messages or you're doing a phone extraction or you're working social media, either, however the communications are between criminals. And when I say criminals, like people that are putting in work every day and that's just what they do. And you see those transactions and they're telling you in those transactions are talking back and forth saying, Hey, I'm not coming to the South side. Like I'm you, you yeah. want this big eight, you got to come up here North side or, you know, I'm right out here by the County line. Like meet me out here in the County. I'm not stepping one foot in that city. It's too hot. That's what they say when you have all those proactive units mm-hmm. and you have, you know, federal task force positions and officers <laughs> that are serving with DEA task force and FBI and ATF. And like, there's this United front and you can actually sit gang members down and talk about that. Spend tw- I mean, like 20 minutes talking them to death and just being like, this is the deal. Like you are in a city where we have this, this, this many units, units that I can't even tell you about because they're working long-term projects, you know, units that are doing phone taps, you, you know, like, and then the wonderful world of the internet, gang members will Google R-I-C-O in their city, RICO, <laughs> and they want to know who's getting indicted. And yeah. when their city has any kind of federal investigations like that in the news, these gangs will, will shut down or at least slow down what they're doing. Yeah. Same thing, like you said, like, in the schools or anywhere else, when, when you get proactive and you do put that pressure, I like the analogy you use. It's like pressure is pressure. You don't stop the bleed. You got to keep that pressure on it. It, 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 it's not a cure for crime and I don't care. I'm not here to cure crime. I'll leave that to the sociologist, right? Like, yeah, we'll always have it. Right. So, so the way I looked at success in, in my perspective in police work was not, can I change the world? You know, when I first became a cop, I was fortunate. Like we're going to get back to the music background here in just a minute. Growing up, listening to the bands that we grew up listening to, there was a message ingrained in my head that if you want to do something, do it yourself. If you're in a band, put your own demo out. If you, you know, have a buddy that's got a record label or you got to write a letter, network, like you make it happen. Don't sit around waiting for corporate record labels to sign you or do whatever. That's not what it's about. So for me, police work was not, can I change the world kind of thing. Mine was always, this is my beat. It's two or three little square blocks or, you know, my first beat was like a lot of Section 8 housing. Like, can I change something here? I don't mm-hmm. care even what's going on in the rest of the city. I'm a beat officer. If I know every night at this corner store, 
there's 10 guys hanging out there and the grandmothers up the street are like, I don't even walk to the corner store anymore because the young kids cuss me out or they're just, you know, they scare me the way they act or we hear gunshots down there. My job is I'm going to disrupt them loitering and trespassing at that corner store so that the grandmothers can come down here, you know, yeah. and then the business owner can be happy. It's like that idea of that success to me where someone else, you know, like older officers and I'd met some deputies back then and stuff that were, were not obvious. They were in the County. I was in the city and they were laughing at me about some of the things that I was doing. And they were just like, Oh, I remember when I was young and I thought I could change the world. And I don't know. It's like this, like um phrase people were always saying. I'm like, it seems like all you guys are kind of thinking the same. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you almost want to justify <clears throat> sitting around and doing nothing. Oh, yeah. And back then it was not, it was a very different culture. It was a very different, the, the mindset back then was like citizens expected you to go out there and, and, you know, identify a problem and do your best to fix it and to go out there and, and chase armed criminals. Like they, you know, it was just a different environment. So now I can understand sometimes when someone's like, I'm not leaving the parking lot. Like I don't have support for that. Sure. But that's my thing. Like it, just look for the small things that you can change while being a police officer and, and learn everything. Like you said, learn all your frequent flyers, learn how to, to do, you know, problem oriented policing or learn because all that's coming back. I mean, yeah. give it oh, another yeah. two or three years. It's going to be, be like, back. it has to come back. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be like some young sergeant who's got like six years on the patrol and they're going to be like, I read this book and it's about problem oriented <laughs> policing, you yeah. know, or, or who's this guy, Jack Maple? I don't know. Let's, yeah. let's check out the broken windows theory. Yeah. And then it's going to be like, Oh, this is our solution where you and me and a bunch of other people were like, did everybody else have to suffer and did they have to be victims and did the cities have to burn and did all this stuff have to go on? At, at the hands of things that we're going to find out a lot of them were not as true as people thought they were, Sure, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. I'm going to switch gears right now and just be like, when you were growing up and you started listening to music, you mentioned Pink Floyd earlier and you yeah. were drawn to the album, right? After that, what was some music that you got into yourself? Like that you either got introduced through cousins or friends or like mm -hmm. that was not just the record collection of the parents. So when I started <clears throat> the first album, <clears throat> excuse me, the first album I ever got, well, actually the first CD. So I had tapes and stuff when I was younger and I had a lot of older cousins um, who were into like the, you know, Alice in Chain stuff and just kind of that 90s type stuff. Um, but the first CD I got on my own was Offspring Smash. And that okay. was in 1997, I believe. Mm -hmm. And kind of a funny story. I uh, I put it onto a tape. My my parents were cool. My dad was really into music, and you know he didn't necessarily like everything that I liked. But we uh, we had moved from the Bay Area to where we are now, and it was a pretty long drive. So we'd listen to stuff on the radio, and I had these tapes. And on the Offspring album, there's a song called "Bad Habit," and mm -hmm. it gets to a point to where the lyrics it just sort of stops, and it says that uh, basically stupid, dumb shit, goddamn motherfucker. I know we talked yeah. about swearing earlier, but that's <laughs> yeah. that was the one part of the song. I remember my dad ejecting the tape, throwing it out the window, and my parents getting into a huge argument for like the rest of the trip. But that was the first CD that I got, and that was, I believe, Nitro that put that out. Um, mm -hmm. And 
then I got really interested. So there's this, uh, it's, it's so weird. There's a, a dirt biking. There was a video store in my, this, the town where I grew up and it was very small. And the video store had like this crusty demons of the dirt. It was like an old, like uh dirt bike serious yeah. thing. Uh-huh. And the first song was uh, white zombie supercharger heaven. Mm. And I was hooked. And it was one of those things where you had to fast forward to the end to see the, the credits and get who the band was. <laughs> And so <laughs> yeah. at the time, this was when the uh, parental advisory labels were really popular. So I had to go like find a friend who could buy it for me at uh, at the time. I think it was a uh, tower down. off, mm, uh, mm. Yeah. And so he would go in there and, you know, buy the CD and have to swap out the cover art so that it was something else because my parents saw it. They'd freak out. And this is when like people were telling you that Metallica was like drowning puppies on stage and nothing <laughs> even close to what reality right. was. And <laughs> yeah. so. I started listening to that. And at the time, White Zombie had already become Rob Zombie. <clears throat> so I convinced my dad. I, I begged him. And we went and saw. Uh, it was the Family Values Tour, Corn and Rob Zombie. And my dad didn't even change. He took off his tie. He was a vice principal at the time. No, he was a teacher. He was still teaching history. Uh, and we go to the show. And I, I shit you not, like, there were so many kids from his school who recognized him immediately. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we didn't know you were into this. And he's like, yeah, this is my kid. And yeah. I remember we were sitting there. And uh, this guy was smoking weed next to us. And he goes to pass it to my dad. And my dad's like, no, I'm trying to cut back. But thank you. And <laughs> um, we see Rob Zombie. And it's just like pictures of Charles Manson all over the place on the big screen behind him. And my dad's just like, dear God, where are we? And then when Corn played um they had like the big jumbotron and it was like this fake prison cell and this chick takes her shirt off and sort of wraps her boobs around the bar and i remember my dad just sort of looked at me like yeah i, I guess you're a man now so <laughs> jesus yeah. and we leave and he, he just like we get in the car he's like yes uh you know, i'm glad you had fun but we're probably not going to do that ever again and i was like oh yeah and i got like a tour t-shirt and so that was like my intro to to a concert that was my first concert ever okay and after that i started just dive into all kinds of music and it was so limited because this was before this was right before like um limewire and all that stuff where you could download stuff but there were some really cool underground music stores in the city and my friends and i would you know try to go down there with my mom and buy stuff and, and look at certain things but i went to um santa cruz to see family and a buddy of mine who was a mutual friend of my parents said, Hey, I'm going to go see a show tonight. Do you want to go? I said, cool. So we went to the vets hall in Santa Cruz and we saw the nerve agents and that was a really cool show, but it sucked because, uh, I think his name was Eric. He got this the lead, the lead singer got knocked out in the first song, like the mic hit him Ooh. and he got knocked mm. out. So they had people from the audience sing the songs, which was pretty neat. <laughs> and the vets hall was like, I mean, it's the size of my garage. It was so tiny. And, then I convinced my parents to let me go see Guttermouth in San Francisco. And I went with two. This is like freshman year now. Mm -hmm. um, and we go to the place it's called At the Bottom of the Hill. It was like a bar. And, you know, I to this day, I can't believe the stuff that they let me do. Nowadays, I'd be like, absolutely not. We're not. No, <laughs> you're not going to the Tenderloin to see a car. No. <laughs> and yeah. so I go on the show with my friend and we get our hands X'd out because we're underage. And the first thing that happens is this, this drunk dude just runs into me and spills beer all over me. And I'm like, oh, no, they're going to think I was drinking. And <laughs> I, we didn't drink at all. Yeah. We see the show. And I get this T-shirt 
and it was free because they threw them out at the end and it was really big and i just remember my friend looked at it and it was it was a just a gutter mouth shirt but it was just this guy spreading his his ass cheeks apart <laughs> and i go oh, i probably shouldn't take this home so i gave it to my friend he took it home and ended up in the trash um yeah. But I got in the car and my mom's like, have you been drinking? I was like, no, I didn't. I told the story. My dad's like, Jackie, yeah. it's fine. It's probably true. And uh, it was just always this hard, you know, issue with going out and doing stuff. And I, I saw AFI in Berkeley for their All Hollows release, which was pretty rad. Um, mm. And that's kind of was like, then I started getting into like the punk scene. And I always had this draw to not necessarily like traditional punk. So we went to Warp Tour a few times and um i saw the unseen they were a band that i was mm. into for a while a buddy of mine who lived in the country leftover crack actually played in his barn um <laughs> okay. which was pretty cool yeah um and we were just running around i mean this is this is probably 99 2000 where you know we found someone who had a car and we would just you you just went to shows it didn't matter mm -hmm. you know you, you could get to the bay area on five bucks it was just a different time and my parents were were really trusting i was also straight edge at the time so that helped mm -hmm. a lot with you know they knew i wasn't going to be drinking or anything like that but um and then the straight edge thing sort of brought me into the hardcore scene and in sacramento there's a band called the hoods i don't know if you're familiar with them but they're mm -mm. kind of more of a west coast thing but mikey hood i haven't talked to him in years and years and years but he was the owner of a place called west coast worldwide which was a venue that was just small it was a small venue in sacramento but it was all just like mostly hardcore bands we saw bane um uh, sinai beach played there a few times like i mean just every weekend there was something mm -hmm. and it was just so funny thinking about these you know 15 year old kids hanging out with these guys that are in their probably 30s just you know getting hammered and hanging out and they were they were neat because they no one was an asshole everyone was super cool it's that misconception yeah. of of what you would think like i skateboarded when i was younger and my parents were like, oh, they're going to do drugs and they're going to do this. And nothing could be, I mean, I'm sure there was drug use sometimes, but they weren't mean, like the bodybuilding yeah. community and all these things that you think would be <laughs> bad. They're, they're super <laughs> nice. Yeah. And in that music community, you know, I just had so many just really neat experiences and it was fun just to go to shows. And then um, one of the cooler experiences I had was when my mom, we, we didn't drive, so we, um, we drove eventually, but AFI became a really at the time for me that was like one of my favorite bands it was just I really liked Black Sails that was probably my favorite album and we go to see them it was like October 27th it was their Halloween show in San Francisco they played at Slim's and all bets off open for them um kind of what, fracas some other just kind of Bay Area local bands it was a really cool show and I remember they were wearing all white that was just like this different thing they usually wore black <laughs> yeah. and so we go to the show. My mom drops us off at at the, the venue, and I completely overshot the. We were told it's going to be a longer show because of the, you know, they're they're in their hometown kind of and blah blah blah. So I told her like, hey, be here around one o'clock in the morning. The show ended at like eleven thirty. So, oh. and here we are. Like, there's like four of us. We're all just you know, literally kids. And we see uh, as we're waiting outside, like they're starting to close up shop. Like the the venue's closing and. Um, we saw Jade, the guitarist and, uh, the drummer and we're like, Oh my God, you guys are so cool. Can we get your autograph? And they, yeah, sure. And they leave. And then the door kind of just like locks. And we were like, Oh God, like <laughs> we're, we're just kind of hanging out now. And this yeah. is before cell phones. Like I, I couldn't find a pay phone. So my mom was going to be back around one. And 
as I came around the corner, there was this alleyway and there was this Honda Civic that was just covered in stickers, like band stickers all over it. And so we all walked back there. Oh, this is cool. We're looking at the stickers and this door opens and it's Davey Havoc. And mm. he's the lead singer of the AFI. And I just was kind of like, whoa, like, dude, you're so rad. You're blah, blah, blah. And we're talking to him and he's like, yeah. And he goes, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, oh, we're waiting for my mom. You know, she's going to come pick us up. And he's like, how old are you guys? Like, oh, about 15, you know? And he's like, okay, I, you know what? I'll just kind of hang for a little bit. And he talked to us for like a half hour. And later on, it was kind of funny. Like he didn't have to do that, but my mom yeah. showed up and all right, guys, take it easy. Like get out of here. He's not going to leave these four kids just you know, standing yeah. around in an alley where these you know, <laughs> creeps are running around. So just so cool. Yeah. Like all the experiences over the years. And then uh, punk kind of faded away. And I got into, I guess what you would call hardcore and uh, just a kind of a weird shift. We actually started a band and what kind of, this is in high school, but we just kind of mm -hmm. went separate ways in terms of, of music. And then hardcore turned into like, I guess what would be death metal and just really cool experiences with, with that community as well. And that's when we actually had cars, we were close to being 18. And I remember one day we, we drove down to uh, Pomona and my friend, Eric at the time, he, he drove all the way down there and it was black Dahlia murder. They went without tickets and it sold out. And there were these big glass windows and Trevor who has since passed, he was the lead singer for black Dahlia murder. He's walking by and Eric just starts banging on the window, screaming his name, Eric, Eric, I'm <laughs> uh, not Eric, Trevor. And he kind of sees him and he's like, Jesus Christ. So he goes outside. He's like, do I know you? He goes, no, you don't know me. I'm from Sacramento. I drove all the way here just to see you guys. Like I'll do anything to get in. Please, 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 please. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, man, just hang out for a second. And he comes back and he's like, you're on the guest list. It's on me. And he's like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, dude. He's like, come in. And he gave him a shirt and a sweatshirt and stuff. But he's like, come on, dude. But just so cool. Like, mm -hmm. and we idolized those guys. Like, he was he was such a, an influence for what we ended up doing with a, we created a band. And I was the vocalist for a little bit um, and ultimately decided I had to get a job and kind of move on. But death metal turned into, um, like, my primary interest. I really liked all that stuff. Saw a lot of great shows. Um traveled to a lot of great places and ultimately uh when i came to where the agency well kind of skipping ahead a little bit but you talked about those those one or two or 200 you know guys um there's not very many guys in law enforcement who have that background or who go mm -hmm. that deep into music and there was this guy who i didn't really know um who is now one of my best friends but um we went to range and he was new and i get in his car because my car couldn't drive up the hill it was snowing and on his dashboard he had like this it was like a like a gi like a like a tiny uh it was satan it was just like a little like plastic <laughs> figure on his dashboard and i was like what's that he goes oh that's satan and i was like oh cool. <laughs> and then so we drive and he's super quiet he was a, a motor from bakersfield originally and um when we were done with range he was like so uh you know you listen to music i was like yeah yeah and uh, i said uh, what kind of music do you listen to and he said oh i like metal and i said what kind of metal and he just kind of dropped his gun and he was like ooh we're mm -hmm. gonna be friends and then that's kind of what started our relationship and he introduced me to a lot of black metal um which is kind of a very different um just different rabbit hole that i really really enjoy now but i really can't say enough for what the music scene did for me as a kid and keeping me, you know, out of trouble, but also introducing me to a lot of, you know, just good people. And I look back on, on those years of my life as some of the most fun and, 
enjoyable and just the the music scene if, if people aren't into it that's fine and i know some people who've never been to a concert before and i always encourage them like you know just find something that's that's fun for you and i i had such a good time and i'm not straight edge anymore but it got me through a, a period of life to where you know i i think my parents trusted me a lot and understood how how serious i i took it and so i had a lot of freedom i really did mm -hmm. and I grew up skateboarding as well, so that kind of tied into music and just kind of that uh, that interconnection between the the punk scene and, and skating. And there's this cool venue in uh, Petaluma, California. I don't think it's open anymore, um, but it was this old opera house, and it's called the Phoenix Theater. And they had two like eight foot quarter pipes on the outside of the the audience area, and in between sets, they'd move the quarter pipes in, and they would skate it like a half pipe. So it was just this really cool, uh, a lot of that stuff isn't around anymore, but I really encourage people to like find, especially with music, it's just such a, and if you play an instrument too, there's something very therapeutic about it. And I encourage my kids to, to listen to music. And we actually went to their first concert about six months ago. There's a band called ghost. Um, mm -hmm. they're kind of, I, I like them. They're not like, oddly enough, I, I didn't really care for them until I saw them live. Their performance is pretty good. <laughs> and kind mm -hmm. of a neutral, a safe concert to where I could take my boys, which are 10 and 13, to where I wouldn't have to worry about anything super crazy happening. Um, but at the same time, like my kids listen to like Belphegor and all kinds of weird stuff now. And it's just, <laughs> it's neat to hear them. We'll yeah. go to this place called The Cave or like what's called Dimple. And I'll let them pick like, hey, you can pick a CD if you want. And they'll kind of pick it based on cover art like we used to do back in the day yeah. it was kind of a gamble you go oh that's so rad you put it in like, this sucks like this isn't even that yeah. good and or, or you or you flip to like the thanks you know like how uh -huh. bands are like we want to thank someone so yeah. and it's always like the first 10 or 12 or like other bands they've toured yeah. with or something and so that was like i was always digging in the fold outs like oh you know whatever gorilla biscuits was thinking mm -hmm. youth of the day or something. So I'm like, Oh, let me check out youth of the day or, yeah. or wh whoever it is. And it just, like you said, you go down that rabbit hole or even like, um, now it's, it kind of came back for a while and who knows if it's still all that with, with younger kids, but like, uh, records. Yeah. It's like really seven popular, inch man. records, man. Yeah. yeah. Like there, there's a cool little like enclave probably in every city where they're still pushing vinyl and stuff, but yeah. Like I still have little seven inch records, you know, one song or two songs on one side, you know, on the other. And it's bands like I've got a veil, uh, their first seven inch record I bought when I was in high school for, I don't know, like three bucks from yeah. sunspot records. And so people will post things and anytime they reference a veil, which is a really good band. I, I've, I think I've recommended them before on the show, but it's a V a I L okay. uh, out of like Richmond, Virginia, if I remember right. But, but Sunspot Records was like a small record label. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I think his name was Mickey, if I remember right. But we used to all write. Like everybody would write letters back and forth to connect and be like, hey, are y'all playing shows up there? Mm -hmm. You know, you order records directly from this person who is putting them in a in an envelope or yeah. in, a, in a box and sending it to you. And so maybe I've got like the, their first seven inch. And same thing, like I don't and I'm not knocking, I don't get into earth crisis. Like I was never that I, hard about stuff, but I've got like their first seven inch when yeah. they, when victory they were, records first started victory. Yeah. Victory is good stuff. They were a little, I've much. got a lot of their early stuff. Yeah. Earth crisis was, they were neat, but it almost was like, uh, how do you put it like into a perspective? Like 
kind of like Shiite straight edge. They were way too hardcore. Like if, if someone was smoking, they'd kick their ass. Just weird stuff where yeah, I never enjoyed that part of that scene to where it was like, you no, know, people can do what they want. Just because this is your lifestyle doesn't mean the rest of the world, you know. There was a, I never saw them, but I heard a story about some guy who was like having a cigarette and some dude from Earth Crisis threw him over a balcony and like paralyzed him or something. I don't know if that's true, but just, you just know, too much. Too yeah, much, if, you it, know? If, it, if it wasn't someone in the band, it probably was one of the fans, you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I won't say the band, but there was a band that I used to correspond with, very well-known band. And that was one of the things we talked about. It's like, hey, I, I'm still like personally drug-free, alcohol-free, all that like straight edge whatever you want to call it and i was talking with this person in that band and i was like but what i don't like seeing and it was that shift of the militant straight yeah. edge stuff like the idea that someone can't make a personal choice and you're just going to beat them up on site and you yeah. can see where it got out of hand in boston and you had to fsu and all like you got out of hand where someone got got killed because they would mob people yeah I mean, without going into all of that, I just, I hate when any kind of movement goes so far extreme. And and my thing, man, when I first even heard the word straight edge and I, I've mentioned it before on, on either disruptors episodes or on other podcasts as a guest, but I was 10 years old and it was minor threat. Yeah. And so, I mean, like for me to get in, I was introduced to like Iron Maiden and Dio and Black Sabbath earlier when I was like eight to nine years old, when I was 10 and I heard minor threat. And in suicidal tendencies and a lot of other bands, but like minor threat, their lyrics, everything just kind of spoke to me. Yeah. And I didn't like the negative side of seeing these like musicians, they're getting drunk, you know, and yeah, the, the decline of Western civilization part two, you know, and it's like yeah. wasp, you know, gang member or uh, gang members, band members. They're like chugging vodka. And I just, yeah. as a 10 year old, I couldn't relate to like, Oh, I want to be on the sunset strip. It was like, no, I want to be in a club listen to bands play and hearing like what I would assume, you know, at that time, like adults or, or very young uh, or very old teenagers talking about positive things. Like I didn't want to be a bad kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, didn't, I just, that just wasn't my thing. So it was always personal. I never, I always hung out with people that drank, unfortunately got into drugs. You know, I, I've had a buddy that used to do home invasions of drug dealers when I was a kid. I picked him up at the correctional facility when I was like 16 so, but I, but I always saw people for who they were, not mm -hmm. like, uh, stereotypes or stigmas or whatever. But for me personally, I just couldn't get into anything like that. And conversely, or, or, you know, also like with earth crisis, when I've got that seven inch, cause back then you, you pay three, four bucks for a record and I got it. And I was like, I mean, the sound is good. Like, I like this, this is a good sound, but man, I can't get behind just being that like militant and that controlling yeah, over other angry. people. Yeah. 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 It was, it was almost like a, a realm of fascism that I just couldn't get yeah, into. And I'm sure they're like the nicest gang, yeah. guy. Yeah. I'm sure they're the nicest guys in the world. And I don't know what they're doing nowadays. I just, I remember getting that record and there were a few other bands and I've still got those records, but it was like this whole shift and I couldn't get down with that. Like I just, yeah. I, I'm more of like, like minor threat, gorilla biscuits. And then even getting yeah. into like when H2O, uh -huh. those guys are phenomenal, nicest guys in the world. They're not sitting there preaching and telling people, you know, Oh, you're, you're wrong for that. They're just like, Hey, if that's you, cool, this is me. Yeah. You know, let's just, everybody have fun and enjoy 
what I grew up knowing as as hardcore, yeah. you know. And Ian McKay, you, I mean, Minor Threat. I remember I first heard it, and it was um, it reminded me of like a, I don't know, Wasp or something, where the song is like thirty seconds, and you're like, whoa, that was too quick. <laughs> but his message was very. Uh, I mean, a lot of it was was true. Um, yeah. And direct, and at the time they were they were fairly young. That was a quick well, Minor Threat in itself was over and done with pretty quick. But yeah, talking about like how these kids were so fed up with. The, the drinking stuff that they just said look we just want to watch the show that's where the x came from i mean you already know yeah that, I'm sure, but yeah, yeah you know x out your hands you guys can come in and watch the show and it was about the music and it, at the mm -hmm. time there was such a crossover with this sort of just like wasted generation that was just so and i never really gravitated towards that there were a lot of punk bands who was i mean i don't a lot of them are probably dead now from like liver disease but it was just mm -hmm. this constant party 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 and i had a few friends who were really into that and i never could really i felt like it was more of an act like it was more of a you know yeah. i'm gonna be this way forever and it no you're not you're gonna pay taxes someday like this is not how the world <laughs> yeah. works and i remember i went and saw uh i was into anti-flag for a little bit and um he had this really nice blue voodoo amp and my dad actually went to that show he came with us and he actually mm. went to quite a few shows when we couldn't drive and we get in the car and my dad was really neutral with all that stuff and we were talking about like the amplifier he got and my dad chuckles he's like it's a tax write-off for him and we were like what's a tax write-off and he kind of like tells us what it is yeah and we're like yeah and he goes all these guys are going to be singing this stuff but at the end of the day they're they're just like all of us and uh yeah he was right though i mean that's that's eventually i don't want to call it you conform but eventually you do have to kind of grow up and and figure out something which is kind of neat because i feel like some of the cops who and I was never anti-cop. I grew up, I'm not, I don't have any of my family, but my dad was, was very adamant that like, you know, you, you just, you, you give respect to everybody mm -hmm. and even skateboarding, all the cops were so chill. They didn't care. Um, they'd show up and it was usually the same guy and be like, all right, man, just cause we have like a camera or something. Can I just do one more and one more. If I land up, we'll leave. Like, all right, fine. And a lot of them were just super chill. They didn't really care. Mm -hmm. There were some that were kind of jerks, but I look back on that and I think of like just kind of how when you see those videos of like a cop do like a kickflip in uniform and the kid just like, yeah. oh my God, how'd you do that? Like yeah. I used to do this. Like I used to skate. I'm a person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I feel like most cops who have a, uh, a kind of a different background, I'm not going to say that all cops, the, the majority of cops who, who wanted to be a cop from when they were kids, I'm not going to say they're bad, but a lot of them don't end up being the best version of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And you could include the ones who who got into it for the wrong reasons or it's a power trip and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah. the majority of cops that I see who are really good and good at talking, they usually have a pretty, you know, just kind of a not colorful in a bad way, but just a, a diverse worldly background in their youth and the things that they used to do. And I think that speaks volumes to to where we are now with, you know, trying to make us more more human and mm -hmm. less robotic and yeah, I mean, you're you're a little bit older than me. I kind of wish I was born a little bit earlier to get to some of like the really good stuff. I feel like the that <laughs> yeah. scene sort of died out, and yeah, there wasn't a whole lot. But then it turns into the you know our generation of punk, which was just a little different. And you know, we would go see like TSOL and mm -hmm. some of the other bands. Seven Seconds was local for me. Ooh, um, yes, I, yeah. I got to meet Kevin a few times, and he oh, was, nice. he was he was nice i mean just older at the time like i didn't yeah. realize how much older he was but um mm -hmm. super chill we got to see them at a venue where you, i mean it was maybe like 30 people and just so cool yeah um 
and I, I, yeah, I was lucky to grow up in a, in an area that wasn't that music oriented, but there was a lot of roots for certain bands and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, when, when you mentioned seven seconds and I've told the story before, but basically I was on a task force, uh, like FBI and our detectives and some officers, but one of the agents, uh, I was wearing cause we were playing clothes. Mm-hmm. So I'd always wear band t-shirts and that was the running joke. Yeah, yeah. People, people would make fun of the band names I was wearing because uh-huh. it's, it's easy to do in punk. And yeah. so I'm sitting there with a seven seconds, walk together, rock together, like the, the yellow ink on, on a black shirt. And I had been working with this guy, but we had never talked about stuff before. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just in, in passing, but he walks in. And he looks at my shirt and he's like, what's with the seven seconds? Or, or what do you know about seven seconds? Yeah. probably. And I'm like, yeah, out. more importantly, what do you know about seven? Seconds? <laughs> yeah. He's like greatest band ever. I was like, uh, yes, you're correct. <laughs> so <laughs> We sit and talk about, you know, seven seconds. And then it just goes into like, cause we were the same age. Yeah. He grew up in the South. He was actually a skater, like, like all the way up through high school. And was, if I remember, I like, sponsored like some local stuff. Okay. He had a band, a local punk band. And then, he joins that state's like um state police department and then later becomes an FBI agent. But man, we would talk about music mm-hmm. and we had a, um like an FBI crime analyst attached to us. And, and she's just like, what are, what language is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and then they started picking up on him mentioning that he was in a band and they wanted to know what the name of the band was, you know, and they're going to yeah. dig in oh, and yeah. find like some old it. footage yeah. or whatever. But it's this idea and that guy has moved up. You know what I mean? So you, you've got people that are doing these, you know, they're, they're DEA agents and FBI and like, you know, all these like great assignments and really care about what they're doing. And then when you, you cross paths and you're just like, man, this is such a, such a great job. Like I get to do stuff that they make movies about. Yeah. And we actually are doing things that we see the direct effect in a neighborhood or a part of the city or the entire city itself or region for some mm-hmm. of the stuff we deal in the task force. And then you get to sit around just and talk about music. And yeah. that is another one, like seven seconds. Like some people may listen to it now, like if they're first hearing it and going, ah, oh, this seems kind of basic or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, but this was groundbreaking yeah, back then. The when time, you got, yeah. yeah. You got a band like basically saying, it's not just girls or not just boys fun. You know what I mean? Like girls yeah. can get in the pit. Like let's make the yeah. environment good for everybody. You know yeah. what I mean? No, they were, they were an incredible band. Uh, I mean, I, I still break them out probably once every two or three months. Um, and, and just going back to the music and like you were saying how it kind of died out, which it did. That was one of the, the, the parts about, I was talking about writing back and forth with that band was like, everything's changing. The scene yeah. is changing bands are changing not all bands are staying together and it did it was like almost this time where it was all dying what's cool now though is because we're all adults now and we've got money to spend yeah and we're going to shows and and people were bringing the next generation to shows and so when i go and i'm, I'm seeing other adults and i'm seeing kids and it's like everybody is getting it i mean you got agnostic front vinnie stigma just um celebrated i think it was like his 67th birthday jesus like Christ. i went and saw agnostic front play when he turned 64 wow and and it was his birthday and i was like blown away that they, they played with Slapshot. they agnostic front got on stage was incredible yeah gets off the stage vinny's talking to us and there was a couple of us there like all punk rock cops a couple of us worked on the same department together 
And he was just really nice guy down to earth talking and cutting up. But I never would have thought that dude's 64 years old. And now, yeah. and they're still, man, they're touring now. Still playing, yeah. they're, they're coming back through the South and they're going to play with Murphy's Law. And I'm like, man, nice. I, I don't know how to, to explain to people, but when someone can be in their mid to now late 60s mm-hmm. and play hardcore music and give it their all, there is something to be said there. I don't, I don't care what people say. It's, it's something about, the power of music of bringing people together, uh, obviously staying active, you know, he's not, he's not coming home every day from a nine to five, getting in a recliner and watching TV for four or five hours, you know, so there's something to say for that. I I just, I love the scene. I love still going to see bands. I'm, I'm picking up new bands now and, and hearing them, you know, with Spotify uh, and all the cool stuff we have now, my friend and I, and there's a Lieutenant actually where I work who, is really into the black metal scene and we'll just sort of text check this out check this out check this out yeah it's that, it's that constant search for the next like just most what can be harder and just darker and we went and saw a band called lorna shore about a year ago mm-hmm. um very interesting vocalist um i called bullshit when i first heard it i was like ah i'll i'll, I'll either wait for the videos or i'll see it in person because it's almost too good but mm-hmm. looking at him and that, that and then as an adult kind of going to shows now it's different we just kind of hang and I'll prefer to sit somewhere, you know. Yeah, higher up, and yeah, it's uh, it's neat, and all. I, I like how the scene's still growing. I think that just it's a different version of, of what it used to be, and there's just so much tech now to where you can put the information out so quickly. Whereas mm-hmm. like we talked about, you know, long ago it was snail mail or you know recordings or burn CDs or just all this stuff that wasn't here. And I love Spotify. I'll I'll just put mm-hmm. it on on shuffle and then just go hang on a second pause who is this okay wow that's a yeah. that's good stuff and it's neat man i like uh i like where it's going and unfortunately like i don't think we'll see the punk scene like it was in the 80s or 70s mm-hmm. and i just think it's a different generation and um but i also could say the same about the 60s and how music kind of sucks now compared to what it, it used to be. Yeah, and yeah. There's a lot of good artists out there. There's a lot of good uh, people that I would like to go see. I'm a, I'm a, I would love to see Post Malone live. Like mm-hmm. he's not my style of music, but I would like to see him play. Like, I think he's just a, a musician in every sense of the word. And that goes for quite a few other people. I mean, I, I would go see Lady Gaga if I, you know, I wouldn't pay for the tickets obviously, but if you had free ones, I'd go. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, stuff I like think, that. I think there's something to be said about sincerity. Like yeah. I will listen to anything that I think the artist is being sincere. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one of the things that like we'll post Malone, you know, I, it, I, I don't know much of his music, but you see reels and you see videos and stuff. And it, it seems cool like he's just like a laid back cat, you oh, know, yeah. and, and just, and, you know, trying to, I guess, make music and enjoy it. Now, is there anything that you're listening to now that you want to like turn everybody on or be like, Hey, check, check this out. I kind of go back and forth. So I'll listen to a lot of older stuff. Um, I'll reference Lorna shore to the hellfire. That's the song just because it's, it's super trendy and everyone's kind of talking shit on it. Actually. Like, oh, it's, it's just trendy. It's this and that. I mean, they're pretty cool. Um, signs of the swarm, really cool band. Um, who else? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Aborted. I'm really into them right now. That guy kind of goes in waves. Bloodbath's another one that I got into. And um, it's just kind of neat to find some. But uh, oddly enough, I'm uh, this is random, but I'm going to my first Tool concert in the, the spring. I've never okay. seen Tool. I've never. And to be honest, I'm not even that big of a fan. Um, 
Uh I didn't listen to them when I was younger, but going back to the experience, I got into a band called Pussifer via my friend who's a tool fanatic and I didn't know much about them, but it was just really neat music. Like I have my, my appreciation for death metal, hardcore punk, all that stuff. But I also just really like to branch out and Pussifer. There is a song in particular called, uh, it's a bullet train to Iowa. And it kind of focuses on like this kind of ayahuasca theme, the desert thing with, uh, Maynard. And it's just, he's kind of plays a character in that band. Okay. But, um, if people have the time, push the first pretty rad, but yeah, I'm going to go see tool. I probably could name two songs, but my buddy, he's like, just trust me. He's like the experience alone is, is worth the trip. So we're going to go see them in Fresno. I'm pretty excited about that, but yeah, so when, I, yeah. I, I just kind of like, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, no, no, I just, um, I'm trying to give more of like a, a musical appreciation rather than, you know how sometimes you don't want to admit that you like certain stuff. Like yeah, yeah. when you were younger, like you liked punk rock so much, but you couldn't admit that like maybe you liked Garth Brooks too. And it was just really right. embarrassing or something. So you <laughs> so kind of keep it quiet. Like that's kind of yeah. like where I'm like, no, I'm just going to listen to whatever. Like if it speaks to yeah. me, cool. I'll, I'll listen it, to it. It is funny you bring that up. Uh, <laughs> Cause Andrea up late, she's got her own show on Tuesday nights. Uh, and so We'll often, it's crazy. We're, we're in a phase right now where we're shooting <laughs> Yahtzee, like playing Yahtzee every night. Okay. The dice game, you know, yeah. and we're just playing Yahtzee and like, all right, what do we want to listen to? And I have to, I have to back up for a long time. Ski would talk about nineties country. Okay. And I'm like, man, I don't want to hear that. Like, I, like I'll listen to some old Johnny Cash or Merle Haggard or something. Sure but don't hit me with some nineties country. And I was like really pushing back. And so people would send us messages like, you know, BC needs to get with it. Like nineties country was great. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like what? Until we're, we're, we're sitting around one night and, and Andre's a, a huge country fan and st- she starts playing nineties country. And I'm like, Oh man, I remember this song. I remember uh-huh. this song. Yeah. You know, and all these memories come back. And so she's like, oh, I didn't think you liked that 90s country, you know? So we have these running jokes like that where now I'm like rediscovering all this like Brooks and Dunn and stuff. Yeah, Brooks and Dunn, yeah. I'm waking up in the morning singing it in my head. I always wake up with different songs in my head. And I went, man, I can't get enough enough of it. And so when you talk about um, Garth Brooks, we do kind of have a running joke about when he did the Chris Gaines thing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and and it's kind of weird, and we don't fully understand it. We think there's yeah. a backstory to a movie, maybe that was supposed to be made, but but she enjoyed Garth Brooks as well, and I think yeah. that's one of those that at the time, you know, he was a huge hit and everybody loved him, and now people look back and and maybe they you know cheese it up or whatever. But he's got he's got good songs. For me, yeah. when I was a kid, when you talk about like what you can admit to and what you can't, like I I was very um protective of what i like that was outside of punk and hardcore uh-huh. as a as a little kid like when everybody's like teasing one another and i secretly loved kenny rogers so kenny I, wouldn't rogers tell, good. I wouldn't tell yeah. anybody <laughs> and so now it's like you know the, the secrets come out and i've told the story before but it, it that was the one for me that i was like man because my my mom didn't like um kenny rogers you know my dad lived in a different town and we'd go see him every other weekend he was not a country fan yeah. and my brother definitely was at none of the kids we were skating with. So it was just like, I would hear like coward of the County or mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I'm like, 
man, like this Kenny Rogers guy is good, but I didn't yeah. have any tapes or anything. I was like, I'll just keep that one to myself. Mm -hmm. But or or just stuff that come up. It's like so when I was a kid, my dad was a, he was obsessed with Stevie. He loved Stevie Ray Vaughan. And okay. Stevie Ray Vaughan, and now you know, I I would say that he's probably one of the most influential artists ever to exist. And if you asked me what kind of music Stevie Ray Vaughan was, I would just say it's Stevie Ray Vaughan. He's his own thing. And my dad had a cool story when he was younger. He actually got to go see him and mm. at this really small venue, and he sat right in front of him. And Stevie Ray Vaughan actually he was he was not sober at the time, but he put his drink and he said, "Hey, can I leave this here?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he would listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan every single Sunday and clean the house. That was just this thing. <laughs> and I would yeah. I would be in my room and wake up to that very distinct Fender Strat sound, and it drove me nuts. I hated it. <laughs> and my dad died when I was 21 from cancer. Mm. And in the years following, I just could not stop listening. To this day, mm -hmm. I still listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan. But if you asked me when I was 15, I'd be like, oh, it's the worst thing ever. I can't stand it. Yeah, And I could say that about tons of bands that I just didn't really – understand or mm -hmm. respect um and then even looking back on bands like you know led zeppelin was considered satanic for its time it was very mm -hmm. controversial it was very and, and listening to it now you're like what are you talking about this is like yeah classic <laughs> old guys listen to this <laughs> yeah yeah and all that stuff but yeah looking back on that i i had a new appreciation i guess as an adult for stuff that that i could really go wow that's actually really good music this is mm -hmm. he he can read and write and you know that that was something that came with adulthood and then you know also exposing myself to certain things that made me feel good or you know i think a lot of times when you get really into a certain genre of music you'll be afraid to explore and you know nope this is what i listen to and even at work i have spotify on and some days it's you know i don't know gorgoroth and other days it's like smooth jazz or just something yeah. kind yeah. of dependent on what i feel like and you know, my, my coworkers would be like, you go all over the place. It's like, yeah, I can't really tell you what I'm going to like from one day to the next or, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's been a huge part of my life and I want my kids to do it and playing an instrument. Like my kids haven't picked anything up yet, but even that exercise is part of the brain. That's just yeah, something that it does to your mind. I played guitar for a while and, you know, I still play a little bit, a little bit of piano, but it's one of those things where, it just exercises a part of the brain that nothing else can. So, yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. And <clears throat> I'll end it on this note that my recommendation is Brooks and Dunn, like for people <laughs> to go out, rediscover Brooks and Dunn, or if yeah. you haven't ch check it out. I, I have, I will, I'll admit whatever defeat or that I was wrong or absolutely wrong. Even the uh, outfits are uh, the, what they wore back then is worth checking it out. But. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> at that time I was, I was in the army and I would travel to Nashville on the weekends. Yeah. And so, and it, and it was either you heard it in the bars or guys in my company would blast country music. And like mm -hmm. one guy always was playing CMT, that country music television. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, I don't like music videos. I definitely don't like country music videos. Like they're just <laughs> horrible. But those those songs, man, I I, I like it. So I'll say I'll, I'll give it up to Brooks and Dunn. Like it's just good music. But yeah. I appreciate you coming on today, yeah, man. man. This is fun. We'll, we'll I'll have you back on, man. We'll get sure. Ski back on, and uh, we'll we'll talk about some other stuff. We'll get into some some other topics and that sort of thing. But I appreciate your time. And if you can, just tell everybody 
how they can reach you, uh, your podcast background and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, Instagram is probably the easiest way. The Zen cop at the Zen cop. Um, I do have a blog on uh, the Zen I'm not as active on the blog anymore just for time reasons. So the podcast is the Zen cop podcast. You can find it on Spotify, um, Apple. And then I also upload the episodes to YouTube. It is a little confusing because YouTube started first. So I have 30 something on YouTube and I think 19 on Spotify. So okay. I would recommend keeping up with the more recent ones as they're probably better and audio is <laughs> yeah. better. And I try to like, I looked back at some of the older ones. Oh God, those are horrible. So anything recent you'll probably, probably enjoy. And then uh, the zencop at gmail.com. But I appreciate getting um, people's feedback and also stuff they want to talk about or hear about all that stuff. So if you are listening, thank you. And, uh, and thank you, uh, BC really appreciate you having me on the show. Yes, sir. Appreciate it, man. Y'all check out the Zencop podcast disruptors out.